0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice Podcast, your biweekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister.
1: And I'm Mama Phillips. Following on from last episode, we're continuing to focus on comorbidities and diabetes, This time, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. James and I will review relevant guideline information and recent trial data before joining Professor William Alazawi for his advice on how to manage both diabetes and fatty liver disease when both present together.
0: As usual, all references discussed during the session are available in the episode notes. In addition, if you're already thoroughly familiar with this topic, do feel free to skip ahead to the interview at the five-minute mark.
1: Our scientific and clinical understanding of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD has been improving at a rapid rate over the past few years. This has included a recent change in nomenclature to reflect current consensus, metabolic-associated fatty liver disease or MAFLD. As summarised in a consensus statement by Eslam et al., the condition previously required the exclusion of other chronic liver diseases. However, it's instead more effective to use positive criteria to differentiate the disease, namely being overweight or obese, presence of type 2 diabetes, or evidence of metabolic dysregulation.
0: But regardless of the name, what does MAFLD entail? And Stee et al.'s 2013 review in Nature summarises the condition well. This is a spectrum of progressive liver disease that encompasses simple steatosis, steatohepatitis, fibrosis, and ultimately cirrhosis. Steatosis refers to the buildup of fat within liver cells. Following metabolic dysregulation, an excess in intrahepatic fat can lead to an excessively fatty liver, but without any immediate health concerns. However, steatosis can lead to chronic inflammation, creating a state called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. As with other forms of hepatitis, this chronic inflammation leads progressively to fibrosis, cirrhosis, and ultimately either liver failure or cancer.
1: Maffel D's root cause, reflected in the new name, is metabolic dysfunction, and as such, is particularly prevalent among people with obesity, type 2 diabetes, and a combination of the two. Current estimates, such as those from Perimpale et al., report that 80-90% to 90% of dysmetabolic individuals have MAFLD, and of these, roughly 25% progress to NASH, and a further 21-25% to 25% of people with NASH progress to cirrhosis.
0: This presents a clear concern for people with diabetes. If MAFLD is so highly prevalent, and almost a quarter of those with the disease are at risk of poor outcomes, should all patients be screened for NASH? Unfortunately, it is not as simple as that. A diagnosis of NASH specifically requires a liver biopsy to confirm the state of liver histology. While non-invasive tests can be performed to identify D patients with a high risk of NASH, the diagnosis ultimately requires this biopsy. This has led to the development of a number of scoring systems to identify people who should be referred for biopsy. For example, Seadullo et al. recently published a retrospective analysis of 2,770 type 2 diabetes patients to evaluate non-invasive scoring systems in predicting steatosis and fibrosis. The study found that age-adjusted FIB4 may improve identification of patients who require referral.
1: Other non-invasive scoring systems are under investigation for routine assessment. For example, Dr. Vlad Ratzou presented data at this year's EASD annual meeting on the use of NIS-4 to rule in people for confirmatory biopsy. But while efforts are being made to overcome this first hurdle of diagnosis, another issue immediately follows. How do you treat NASH once identified? At the time of writing, there are still no approved pharmacological agents to manage the inflammation or fibrosis observed in NASH. In fact, the only treatment with confirmed efficacy is weight loss. According to EASL EASD Eso guidelines published in 2016, a weight loss of between 7 and 10% body mass should be the target of most lifestyle interventions and results in improvement of liver enzymes and histology.
0: Although these guidelines do not recommend any specific treatments to help achieve this weight loss, there is growing consensus that healthcare professionals should consider MAFLD and NASH when selecting antihyperglycemic medications for people with type 2 diabetes. For example, a review by Jennison and colleagues note that SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists, which are both classes associated with weight loss, have shown promising data in this area, although findings from larger randomised controlled trials are awaited before these can become recommended as treatments.
1: So what can clinicians do now while we await new treatments and trial data? Joining us today to answer that very question is Professor William Alazawi, who's Professor of Hepatology at Queen Mary University of London and also Chair of the British Association for the Study of the Liver Special Interest Group for NAFLD.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Alazawi. Our first question today, given the absence of approved agents for treating NASH, what management approaches should we be offering for patients with either confirmed NASH or high-risk MAFLD?
2: Thank you very much. You're absolutely right. There aren't any treatments approved at the moment for NASH. And I think the most important element of identifying a patient with NASH is to establish what their risk is of actually developing significant liver disease in the future. We know that people who have NASH and also have liver fibrosis as a result of NASH are those at greatest risk of developing clinically significant endpoints. So that means progression to cirrhosis or the development of hepatocellular carcinoma. We also know that people living with type 2 diabetes in particular are at increased risk of those endpoints and therefore, that risk stratification becomes very important in the population we're talking about today. The interventions that we know make a difference relate to diet and exercise, weight loss, and uh, there's good evidence from randomized controlled trials that weight loss of over 7% has a significant impact not only on NASH, but also on fibrosis. Now, some of my colleagues listening to this will say, well, we already offer that advice to patients. But what I think all of us know deep down is that provision for behavior and lifestyle change can always be improved, no matter what health setting you work in. And perhaps different elements of information, such as knowledge of NASH and fibrosis, will have a different degree of impact on behavior change in certain patients. Nevertheless, we do know that patients with NASH, fibrosis and diabetes can progress to end-stage liver disease and therefore focusing on these uh, risk factors becomes very important. We need to take a broader view, and that includes looking at patients' cardiovascular risk profile. We know, of course, that patients uh, who have NASH do die of malignancy, cardiovascular disease, as well as liver disease. Whether the risk factors are truly, quote, independent, close quote, is a matter for debate. But certainly that increase, increased risk needs to be addressed. And in terms of diabetes control, there is emerging evidence that better diabetes control may be associated with a slower progression to end stage liver disease. So taken together, there is a lot that we can and should be doing once we've diagnosed a patient with NASH or that we're concerned that they might be at risk of it. Of course, there are a large number of clinical trials. Some of those clinical trials are completely novel agents, and some of them are trials repurposing or broadening the indication for existing drugs with proven efficacy in diabetes.
0: Marvellous. Thank you so much for such a comprehensive answer. Now, looking specifically at people with both diabetes and MAFLD, how should the presence of fatty liver disease influence treatment selection for diabetes? For example, should an agent with weight loss efficacy be selected over other agents in the management of type 2 diabetes?
2: Well, that's a very tantalising question, because um, it's always very tempting to go to the existing drug cupboard uh, when a new disease like this comes along and see what we've got that we can use um, at at the moment. I mean, the short answer is that there is no evidence that the treatment paradigm for diabetes should be altered Um, because of the presence of MAFLD. Now what I haven't mentioned so far, the use of vitamin E and piaglitazone, both of which are mentioned in the uh, guidance, um, but uh, they're not very widely used. Some concerns around whether or not they alter fibrosis, which we think is the main predictor of outcomes, but also some concerns around safety. Nevertheless, Uh, there is the question as to which drugs to use for diabetes. And what I say to colleagues and also what we say in the Joint Diabetes Liver Clinic where I work is that we should go through the diabetes pathway in the same way, cognizant of the fact that the patient may also need to be risk stratified and advised and educated as to what's going on with their liver. I think what we should think about, though, is where drugs such as GLP1s, the SGLT2s, even bariatric surgery as a treatment option, where these fit in the diabetes paradigm, and whether we're leaving these too late given the proven efficacy that they have. Now there is some crossover crossover with NAFLD, not necessarily the um, phase three randomized controlled trial data that we want, but certainly cohort data um, for bariatric surgery and emerging evidence around the GLP-1s and the SGLT-2s. There are lots of new classes emerging that are likely to have dual benefit, both on um, metabolic function, whether that be insulin resistance, um, or whether that's weight loss specifically, and also have efficacy with benefits to NASH, fibrosis, and long-term liver outcomes. Your specific question about whether we should choose an agent with weight loss is rather leading, And it's not the weight loss per se, I think, that should make us uh, select the order in which the treatment pathway is constructed for a patient with both fatty liver disease and diabetes. But really, we should be looking for outcomes. We should be looking for data that support what we know influences, whether it's all cause mortality, liver related mortality, or cardiovascular disease. And that should be what we focus on. The mechanism by which a drug reaches that will come in as a secondary consideration, I think, after we know what hard outcomes there have been.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Uh, So our last question for today, what's your opinion on screening for MAFLD in people with type two diabetes? Should everyone with type two diabetes be screened for MAFLD or NASH? What would you recommend our listeners start doing tomorrow to help identify and manage this disease in their patients?
2: So I think that's the easiest question you've asked me, because uh, if we stick to the definition of screening, then there is no evidence to support uh, screening patients for MAFLD. And that's certainly not in any guidance. Maybe I could caveat that by saying there's no evidence yet. However, we should absolutely be thinking about fatty liver disease in an at-risk population. We already have guidance that tells us that individuals who have elevated liver function tests should have investigation to consider the cause of those abnormal liver function tests. We already know that in individuals who have a fatty liver on ultrasound, done for whatever reason that may be, should have further investigation to explain the cause of that fatty liver. At the back of our minds, we're aware of the fact that maybe two-thirds of our patients with type 2 diabetes would have MAFLD. So what would I recommend our listeners do tomorrow? Well, I think they should be considering MAFLD and risk stratification of fatty liver in patients with type 2 diabetes, and if there is an indication, for example, abnormal liver tests or concern around a fatty liver on ultrasound, then there are many very simple uh, risk stratification tools that are available and that use routinely collected clinical parameters, ALT. AST, and maybe that is a bit of a difficulty for some listeners having both the ALT and the AST available to hand. Platelet count, those are the sorts of parameters that feed into these risk scores. Lots of labs, ours included, are now um, generating a FIB4 as an orderable test that returns a result, a risk category, and an action plan for for that. So, my simple advice is to think fatty liver in your patients with type 2 diabetes. And if you thought fatty liver, think what stage? In other words, use a simple risk stratification tool to identify those patients in whom significant fibrosis cannot be excluded and follow your locally agreed pathway.
0: And that just about brings us to the end of today's time. Thank you so much again for joining us, Professor Alazawi.
2: It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope this podcast has helped some of our listeners um, bring together the concepts of fatty liver disease and risk stratification into the care of the patient with type 2 diabetes and more broadly brings our two specialties closer together. Thank you very much indeed.
1: This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarise, fatty liver disease is highly prevalent among people with metabolic diseases, including obesity and diabetes. A notable proportion of people with metabolic-associated fatty liver disease will progress to NASH, which is associated with a number of poor hepatic, cardiovascular and renal outcomes. Although there are no approved treatments to manage NASH directly, outcomes can be improved through appropriate management of related metabolic diseases, including weight loss of 7% of body mass in people with obesity, and adequate glycemic control for people with
0: diabetes. Thanks for joining us. As a reminder, all references discussed in the episode are available in the description, and we'd love to hear from you on social media. If you haven't done so already, consider subscribing to this podcast on your favorite app or recommending us to your colleagues. You can also access all of our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu, including interactive case studies and animated storyboards.
1: Thanks again for listening, and please do join us next time when we'll be looking at the co-occurrence of chronic kidney disease and diabetes.